0: Oh well, hello, and welcome to another, perhaps I say the penultimate edition of Skeptics and Seekers Season 1. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by the other guy.
1: Yep, I'm Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side.
0: And today we have someone filling the third chair. Third chair, it's Helen Painter. How you doing, Helen?
2: Hi, I'm very good,
0: thank you. Excellent. Uh, Today we're going to be uh, talking about something very near and dear to my heart. And so if you all were thinking about touching that dial, don't break it off for the next two hours. This is going to be great. Dale, tell them all about it.
1: Sure. So uh, this is going to be a topic that's uh, near and dear to both our guests, uh, Helen, uh, and to our audience, uh, a lot of skeptics. We're, we're talking about biblical violence, um, so I know this is a, an important topic that needs to be uh, addressed and, and discussed. And we've done it a couple times between me and David there. Um, but just before we get into the uh, the format of today's debate, uh, I think we should turn it over to our to our guest Helen to just sort of, sort of give the audience an introduction as to who you are. Um, you know, you give sort of a bit of a your Christian faith journey and. Uh, Specific notes as to what interested you in this topic in particular.
2: Okay, hi. Um, Well, uh, so my name is Helen Painter. I live in Bristol, England. Um, I'm a Baptist minister. I actually started my um, my working life as a doctor, a medical doctor, and about 11 years ago was called into Baptist ministry. um, Trained here in Bristol, and worked in worked in a couple of churches now in in uh, Bristol here. about um, about 11 years ago, I guess, probably before I started training, so it might be a bit longer than that now, um, I got a phone call one evening from our church youth worker, and uh, she phoned me and said one of the young people that she was working with had um, been reading her Bible seriously, or certainly her Old Testament seriously, for the first time, and um, had encountered all these stories of violence which were really disturbing her, and this young woman was in danger of losing her faith. And you know, have you got anything I can say to her, Helen? Well, I have no idea what I said on the phone that night. Nothing useful, I'm pretty sure. But um it kind of flagged up for me. I mean, these these stories which I grew up with and and known all my life, but it flagged up for me, perhaps for the first time, um I, I guess the, the the potency that they that they have today, the the way that they are a barrier for faith for some people, for many people actually. Um and 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 the ethical problems that they that they continue to present, and I'm ashamed to say I hadn't thought about those things very much up till that point. Anyway, so I, I when I came to do my theological training, I, I wrote a dissertation on the subject. Um, then thought I'd kind of left it behind when I went to do my doctorate, and I was I did my doctorate on humour and kings, which sounds completely different but funnily enough actually wasn't that different in the end because um human the humor in kings is is pretty black it's pretty violent actually so in many ways i kind of didn't leave the subject behind but coming out of that um i think probably most people who who've done doctoral work if they're going to go on with academic work they kind of as they're ending a big project like that they're kind of itching to get on to the next thing and i was itching to get back to this question really I wanted to look at judges more carefully and, and so on so um, so that was about oh, five years ago now, something like that. Um, and and so I, it's become the, the, the subject that I grapple with the most, I suppose. Um, about So in, in the autumn last year, so I continued a pastoral ministry in Bristol in the autumn last year. Um, Bristol Baptist College, where I work on, I'm a tutor part-time, and we set up at the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence to um, look into these questions more, more deeply. And so I'm the director of that, um, and we're sort of gathering a, a a little, well, aiming to gather a little community of people who are interested in those subjects, and some who are physically here with us, and, and others who just want to be interlocutors, really, from elsewhere, like, like today, I guess. So for me, this is a question that um, the question of biblical violence matters because of people um, striking out their Old Testaments or losing their faith. Um, And those are really pressing problems for the church, certainly in the UK, as I see it. The the other issue that um, we're dealing with in the centre is the appropriation of the Bible um, for the purposes of, of violence, to endorse violence my current research work is um i'm looking at domestic violence and the appropriation of the bible in 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 such situations both by the perpetrator and also by um the churches who sometimes you know say to say to people who experience domestic violence that they must remain in that relationship um my next project after that i'm going to be looking at um the far-right extremist language and and how that is appropriated in the bible and how we can equip the churches to, to grapple more faithfully with these in a way that leads to Irenic interpretations. So perhaps that wasn't quite as small a nutshell as you were expecting, but um, that's kind of the, that's where I'm starting from, I guess.
0: So uh, even though this isn't an interview per se, uh, I would like to ask one or two follow-ups just uh, mm. for clarity. Uh, so you are a Baptist, but you are British. And I think a lot of people in America doesn't, don't really know what that means. Um, Baptist here usually implies something very conservative, very fundamentalist. How, how does your brand of Baptist, um, compare?
2: Yeah. Yes. I, and I almost qualified that when I said it, and I thought it might sound ungracious. We would distance ourselves theologically in many ways from the Baptists um, of the United States. So obviously, we have many things in common in terms of the, the, the essentials of faith, but, um, Baptists in the UK are, by and large, we're quite diverse, but by and large, much, much less fundamentalist than that. So, um, yes, so we're a fairly broad broad, broad church, quite literally, I suppose. Um, myself, I would position myself fairly kind of middle of the road in terms of, I've myself as a thinking evangelical. I'm also aware that the evangelical has a lot of freight these days that um, I'm uncomfortable with, but I'm, I'm kind of not willing entirely to... to, to um, abandon that word, I suppose. But I like, certainly regard myself as a thinking, you i know, who wants to grapple really honestly with faith and and definitely would not position myself as a fundamentalist. Okay.
0: And uh, before I ask my uh, next question, I just want to let the audience know, we are going to allow a little bit more audio... Um, artifacts than usual uh, we we are having a slight difficulty uh, with clear Skype signal today but this conversation is too important to try to put off or, or postpone and so to the extent that it's going to be a little bit more challenging I apologize there's nothing I can do about that but I think that you'll appreciate the discussion as it goes on my my last question uh, before getting into my case um, kind of segues into that a little bit. So you, ask, you were asked this question about biblical violence. Were you I don't know if you were a preacher at the time, but you were definitely a Christian at the time Did it ever cross your mind uh, that maybe God is an awful person and the Bible is an awful book? Did you, did you ever explore that possibility?
2: That that the Bible is an awful book.
0: Yeah, God God's awful and the Bible's awful. I mean, it's just as a possibility if you're going to research the question. Or was it always a way of finding a way to defend God in the Bible? How how did that go? Yeah, I think I think it's a
2: really good question. It's it's. I'm not sure I can give a a quick answer to that. My starting point, and I'll probably say this a little bit more clearly in my my opening statement in a few minutes, but my starting point is as a Christian believer who I, I believe that the fullest revelation of God is found in Jesus Christ and most particularly in Jesus Christ on the cross. So I begin from a position of faith and I'm not willing to abandon that position of faith. I am, however, willing to ask very hard questions um of the biblical text and i believe i hope of, of god as well um so I, I do start from position of faith but I'm, I'm not i'm absolutely never wanting to defend the indefensible. i i sometimes well I, I sometimes i'm uneasy with some of the sort of ways that my christian brothers and sisters argue sometimes or I don't mean argue but you know position themselves and and sometimes it feels to me like they they make up their mind they have to defend something and they will use any any tool that they can lay their hands on to defend that position and and I'm really not happy with that I'm really you know I'm I'm not so I I don't know if I've answered that question that
1: it you, did. you did okay <laughs> Good. Awesome. awesome okay um uh, perfect so so yeah now that we have our sort of introduction uh to our guests uh why don't we get straight into it so so what we're going to do this is going to be sort of uh, along the lines of what me and david do each week so i'm going to turn it over to david first to make his opening case uh and then we're going to give helen a chance to give her opening case uh and then after that we'll open it up to a uh, informal dialogue back in and, and sort of uh, fleshing out some of the ideas in the openings there, uh, and then we'll close. Then we'll finally close off, uh, starting with David, and then give Helen the the last word for the night for that day. Um, so yeah, let's let's get straight into it. Uh, David, uh, why don't you go ahead and make your opening case there?
0: Great, and uh, Dale, hopefully you'll take some notes so that you can uh, tease out some of the things that we missed or left in a questionable state <laughs> as we. Uh, as we make our case. Um, so I would like to make as a positive opening statement, uh, that biblical violence disqualifies the Bible as a useful tool for moral enlightenment. In other words, I just, I think it's the wrong place to look for moral enlightenment. This is a slightly uh, nuanced case than one that you've heard me make before, slightly different. Um, usually, I might be banging on about uh, how I feel that the God of the Bible is an immoral character. I, I, As an atheist, I obviously do not believe that the God of the Bible exists, so I think that we all understand that going in, although I used to. I was a very staunch Christian. I was a preacher for a long time, so I... Um, I'm very uh, familiar with the faith position, but this argument is not a simple God is an evil God argument. It is also that the Bible is a bad book uh, with relation to it being um, considered the word of God and therefore a bad place to find useful ethical information for a modern society. So I I just want to clarify what my case is and what it is not. So, uh, point one, the Bible seems to promote violence as a good thing. Certainly, it doesn't talk about it in terms of being a bad thing, and I think that it positively promotes it in a few areas. So, if I can uh, just Outline some of those areas first by way of justice. The Bible seems to think violence first when it comes to justice. Uh, the first example of this we encounter is when God makes human beings. Among the first words he teaches them is, If you cross me, I will kill you. These these are among the first words spoken shortly after, let there be light. And I find this to be an unconscionable way uh, to have an exchange with the first, the, the first exchange with the first humans to be a threat of violence. But that is that is kind of where it uh, begins, and I think it goes throughout uh, the Bible all the way through the New Testament with a reiteration of the idea that there can be no forgiveness without blood, and in this literary sense, blood is a representation of death or violence, if you will. And so it, it seems to be stated as a matter of fact that justice equals violence at some level. Um, I do not know where uh, our guest stands on the subject of hell, but I grew up with a real burning, torturous, eternal hell the most violent of uh, ends one can imagine. So uh, that would be first. Uh, Second, I think that um, the Bible promotes violence when it comes to nation building. It seems that God cannot envision building a nation without also building an army. And to uh, rephrase the words of Captain Kirk in the worst Star Trek movie of all times, why does God need a starship? <laughs> Why does God need an army? Why does He need arrows that are constantly drunk with blood? uh I do not understand this, but in terms of nation building, even when uh when the the apologist says, well, but God uh such as the canaanites he he wanted to drive them out nonviolently. Well, that's just not true. He wanted to drive them out. Uh, with a vanguard of soldiers carrying swords. Um, violence was the first uh, course of, of uh, nation building, and I think that that is fundamentally uh, difficult to understand with a God that has every option in front of him, including every sci-fi, fantasy, magical option in front of him. Violence. Simple human violence um, seems to be the way. Um, a- another area where I think that violence is um, promoted in Scripture is through righteous suffering. And this is not an argument that I think that anyone's heard me make over the, uh, over the season, maybe my, my um, solo uh, discussions about some of the teachings of Jesus. But I think that the idea of suffering and martyrdom speak to a type of mindset that says violence is a good thing when good people suffer it. Uh, God appreciates the fact that you suffered in his name. And I, it, it chills me to the bone that there would be a God sitting back and appreciating, getting some measure of pleasure or enjoyment or satisfaction out of the fact that someone is suffering Uh, for their name. I do not have children. I uh, would imagine, though, if I did, I would not find it joyful or prideful that my child suffered for me. I would would want to end that, and I would not want my child being a martyr uh, for me. And it seems that Christians have picked up that idea by making suffering and martyrdom a sign of uh, faithfulness, so that they can say, "Look, this must be true." Look at how much they suffered, uh, and therefore making suffering um, a good thing. So I think that the Bible does uh, does that makes a positive case for violence, if you will. Now, the second part of my case, moving moving forward, violence is never the right answer when other options are available. This is kind of a syllogism, so let me read this again. Violence is never the right answer when other options are available. With God, other options are always available. Therefore, God is never justified in using violence, especially to the extent uh, that seems to be promoted in the Bible. I will move on to that, and I'm sure that we will have some uh, rebuttal around that. My third uh, and final point of my case is that biblical violence has slowed down moral progress. In other words, I think that the world is fundamentally a worse place than it needed to be at this point because of biblical violence. And so some of the examples I use here, maybe we will discuss them later, maybe not, I do not know. But I believe that slavery lasted longer on the earth Then it would have naturally, had there not been a word of God promoting it. Now I know that it is argued that God didn't promote it; He only allowed it, and so forth. We can debate that, but the fact is, God had a golden opportunity to uh, speak against it in the strongest possible terms. Allow His people to disobey Him and show what it looks like when his people disobeyed him and made it clear that he was never for it. That's not what the Bible did, though. And so I do call that a a type of promotion, even even if Christians tend to uh, deny that. And I think that if the Bible had gone the other way uh, with that, slavery would have ended sooner, much sooner. I think that uh, we have the death penalty today in developed nations, uh, largely because the Bible promoted the death penalty for so many offenses that uh, civilized nations would never promote. And finally, I think that animal, animal cruelty is far worse, far higher than it would be if the Bible hadn't promoted animals as simply a means to sacrifice to a deity with little regard to the creature itself. And so I think that in these three areas more, but I, I call out these three in particular, the world is a worse place because of biblical violence. And so uh, my opening statement that biblical violence disqualifies the Bible as a useful tool for moral enlightenment. I turn it back over to the
1: moderator. Okay, perfect. So, so what we'll do now is we'll have uh, Helen give her opening case. Uh, it's not necessarily responding to anything David's brought up up specifically this is her own her own case and then after we'll have that follow-up so yeah go ahead helen take it take as long as you need for your opening case there
2: well thank you very much i um, i just want to say i'm really grateful to you both david and Delph for inviting me to have this conversation with you because i think it's a hugely important question um in my opinion it's one of the most important questions facing the church in the uk and maybe in the usa and canada as well in our generation <clears throat> Let me just say at the outset that some of the questions that David raises are really the territory of ethicists, uh, moral philosophers and historians and, and I'm none of those things, um, I'm a biblical specialist and so I come to this question um, rather differently from David both in terms of my starting point obviously, um, but also in terms of my methodology. I will try and make some comments in response to David's points a bit later on in the conversation, um, although I do want to say at this point my limitations in, in, my, in that, some of those areas. Um, but for now, I'm going to keep the conversation with my own area where I've got a bit of expertise at least. So let me state my starting point. Um, as a Christian, I believe in the goodness of God. I believe that God, that the God that is revealed in the Bible overall, and most particularly in Jesus Christ, is good, kind, loving, without ethical flaw and faithful to his promises. That's my first starting point. My second one is that I believe that the Bible is God's word to us. Now, what those simple words mean, the Bible is God's word to us is a really complex set of ideas. It certainly doesn't mean, at least as I use it, that we can lift any phrase or sentence or even story off the page and say, this is what God is saying. In actual fact, even the most fundamentalist of Christian readers don't do that consistently. For example, um, the prayers are the psalms are prayers addressed to God. And so it's nonsense to take one of those phrases, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, for example, and say that this, in isolation, is, is God's word. So discerning the voice of God in Scripture is complex and needs careful thought. I believe it needs careful study, and this is my own field of biblical studies. So my two starting points so far, God is good and the battle is God's word to us. And that immediately introduces a point of tension, Um, because if we're honest, there are parts of the Bible where the goodness of God is not so apparent, places that might cause us to question it. Let me talk a bit about how I approach this point of tension, and I touched on this a few minutes ago, I guess, but um, perhaps I could compare it for a minute to the question of suffering, you know, the one, why do bad things happen to good people, and variations of that question. As a minister, I get asked that question with extreme regularity, and depending on the pastoral circumstances that I'm being asked when I'm being asked it I usually reply a bit like this I don't know I don't believe we're told the answer to that I do believe that we're given bits of the answer I'm happy to discuss those bits with you but I don't believe that those puzzle pieces add up to a whole picture there are still gaps there are no easy answers and anyone who tries to tell you otherwise is a charlatan That's my answer when I'm asked about the question of suffering and my answer to the question of biblical violence is actually quite similar. I believe that careful study of the Bible can help us answer some of the questions. I think that there are some important things that are often overlooked when we take an initial approach to the text and I believe that careful study of these things can help us to understand them and I hope we might be able to discuss some of these together in a few minutes. But in the end, I don't have, and I don't believe there is, a grand unifying theory that makes it all okay. I don't have a killer answer to all the questions that David has posed or that others might ask. As somebody who goes around lecturing and talking about this broad area quite a lot, I've had to become quite used to the sensation of admitting the limitations of my own knowledge and understanding, and I think I'm getting quite good at that. <laughs> Fundamentally, I'm committed to approaching the question honestly. As someone who does my work with the hope of glorifying God through it, I absolutely believe that God will not be honoured by attempts to twist the facts or to spin things or manipulate reality or to offer fake news. I believe that the sincere pursuit of truth is always a good thing. So I am unafraid to follow truth where it leads because I believe in the end that all truth is God's truth. When that takes me to a dead end that I can't see my way out of, which happens quite often, quite honestly, then I have to stop, admit my failure and try and find a way out of that dead end. And of course, all this is done in conversation with others who are also trying to follow truth. So that's my starting point and my ethical stance. God is good. The Bible is his word to us. Sometimes they appear to contradict one another. When that happens, I'll try and square the circle to the best of my ability, but with, as best I can, with integrity and acknowledgement of my own limitations. Okay, now let me say something about my approach. The Bible was written over thousands of years by, and I, 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 I know you know this, and I'm guessing most of our readers know this as well, but forgive me, I just want to state it anyway. Written over thousands of years by many different writers and with it within a broad range of social and theological media. This is made for a complex, messy book that doesn't speak with one voice. Texts are in conversation with one another. There's development of thoughts and ideas. Sometimes the Bible even subverts itself. It uses sophisticated literary techniques, including parody, hyperbole, and satire. If we try and read it as if we were all written by the same person, or if we try and read it as if it's a sequence of propositional truths, we will misread it, and possibly even catastrophically misread it. I actually love its complexity, its messiness, its richness. But this make reading is an exasperating experience. It's not for nothing that the theme of wrestling with God is a potent one in the early part of the Old Testament, because the whole Bible could be seen as a product of that wrestling. This takes us then into the question of the genre of writings that we have in the Bible. Not only do we have a wide range of different historical and social settings and different theological priorities, we also have different styles of writing, that is different literary genres. And if we believe that God speaks through scripture, The relationship of his words to the textual words is necessarily different in different genres. Part of the task of biblical interpretation, if we're reading for the voice of God, is to try and tease this out. I've already referred to the place where the psalmist says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it would be obvious to everyone that this is a completely different sort of utterance than, for example, the words of Jesus, as recorded in Matthew's gospel, blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. One could conceivably be God's direct word to the reader, the other one can't possibly be. We can't read them the same way. This is an element of what's known as speech act theory, which, seems to, which seeks to investigate what words are doing. And so violence in one text may not be the same as violence in another text. It might be an entirely different type of speech act Um, As an example, I read a book recently, a scholarly book, where the author um, ought to have known better, quite frankly, that referred to three instances of what the author referred to as divine violence within one sentence. One of those, if you look them up in their their settings, one of those was a threat. It was a warning in the mouth of a prophet. Another was a piece of rhetorical invective. And the third was a command to commit acts of violence, offered in the context of a text that claims historical value. Now, it's clumsy and naive of a scholar to conflate those three texts. They're doing different things. They're different speech acts. They're serving different purposes. All three may well present an ethical problem to us, but they don't present the same problem. So I believe it's important to tease out what we might call the texts of violence, to look at each one on its own terms rather than as part of a homogenous mass of, quote, problem texts, unquote. When we do this, I think some interesting things emerge. Very broadly speaking, violent texts in the Bible fall I think these seven categories. I might, you know, given time, refine this a little bit more. But but I think broadly speaking, these seven categories will cover it. Number one, descriptions of societal or interpersonal violence. Descriptions of number two, appeals by humans to God for violence, so-called imprecatory prayers. So in, as in Psalms, for example. Number three, acts of what we might describe as violence against animals. Number four, threats or warnings of violence. And this often overlaps with the fifth one, which is violent language that is metaphorical, such as some of the violent language of the prophets or the eschatological writings. Number six, the recounting of acts of judgment or punishment by God directly or through natural disaster. And number seven, I think the most problematic one, is commanded violence, commanded by God. Now, each of these categories constitutes a type of violence and presents problems and questions to the reader, but I don't believe they present the same problems. I I did have an example written down, but perhaps we'll discuss that if we want to come back to that later. Um, So there's a difference, I would argue, between, for example, narrated violence and commanded violence. Let me make a few more brief points before I um, hand back to the moderator. Firstly, this is an ancient text. It is written within societies where violence is much more commonplace than it is most of us today. It's also, um, both Testaments, but especially the Old Testament, written in a culture that has an enormously different worldview from our own. They say the past is a foreign country, but actually comparing the ancient Near East to 21st century America or Britain, it's a foreign world. Their view of cause and effect is different from ours. Their view of the role of God in human affairs is different from ours. Their view of what constitutes a good society is different from ours. And I venture to suggest ours may not inherently be better. I do think our society is better in many ways. It's more peaceful, it's more democratic and so on, better off women and so on. But the ancient priority for societal order rather than individual autonomy is not inherently worse than ours i would say it's just different the ancient concern for honor and shame rather than guilt and punishment is not necessarily inherently worse than ours just different but if we fail to appreciate these absolutely massive differences we will be in danger of dropping our own grid onto the text and drawing conclusions that are unwarranted and again i had an example lined up but i'll leave that for us to come back to if we want to Um, my second final point, as it were, when we drill down into some of the texts of violence, we find that our translators, and often those who comment on them, have done us a disservice and have actually overstated the violence that they contain. In the book of Joshua, for example, the situation is far more complex than the basic words of our translations would imply. Maybe we'll get a chance to discuss this in more detail a bit later on, but essentially the Um, biblical testimony about how Joshua conducted himself during the conquest is by no means as cut and dried as we often think and as we would often summarize it as being. We may believe that he scorches his way into the land of Canaan, slaughtering everyone in his path. Um, I'm not convinced it's that stark. Now I'm not suggesting that the problem can be made to go away and remember that I am to the best of my ability utterly committed to being as honest about this as I can. But I do think that when we pay careful attention to the thought world and to the tensions within the text and to the use of rhetorical language and the proper translation of certain technical terms, that the conquest is not quite as bloody and total and holocaust-like as we might think. Third, and this follows from that point, we need to understand the theological purpose of the text, of any text that we read. Its primary point is not to narrate historical events. We you can debate the history of the Old Testament narratives if you want to, but that's not my point here. Its purpose is to give a theological commentary upon them. Actions are invested with meaning. Um, I've got an example. I hope it'll work in the USA. Um, consider someone who tunnels under a building and plants explosives underneath that building with the plan of detonating those explosives when hundreds of people are inside. Now, Now, that's a terrible action. That's attempted mass murder. But if that building happens to be the British Houses of Parliament and the moment of detonation is planned for a time when the king and his entire government will be inside, then it is more than a terrible act of attempted murder. It's an attempted coup. And that incidentally is reference to a historical events, the, the plot that was made and foiled in 1605 by a man called Guy Fawkes. And we Brits remember it fireworks every November the 5th. So my point is that actions are invested with meaning, and we will understand the Bible better, especially the Old Testament narratives, if we remember that. Um, Fourth, and I'm almost done now, I want to agree with David that the Bible has been interpreted for violence on many occasions through history. And in fact, such abusive appropriation continues to take place today. I I mentioned that I'm working on domestic violence, and my next project is the far-right extremist rhetoric. Um, Such use of the Bible deeply disturbs me, and um, I'm on record. I wrote in a blog about my own personal response to reading about such incidents on one particular occasion. I wish my sacred text were more explicitly oriented towards non-violence in places. I wish it were not so open to misinterpretation. But I do believe that it is misinterpretation that has led to such use. And although I agree with David that the Bible has been invoked for some terrible purposes, for example, to lend support to slavery, I would also want us to notice that it was used to shape the worldview and practice of those who fought valiantly and successfully for its abolition. I'll rest my argument there for now.
1: Excellent. Okay. Um, So yeah, that that does it for our two opening speeches. So now we're going to get into the informal dialogue portion. And I think... Uh, David, if you want to maybe start us off, um, do you have anything to say or uh, or converse with Helen about based on her opening statement and her methodological approach?
0: So I took three notes, but um, I wanted to go ahead and give Helen uh, the first shot at me. Sure. Since I I opened it up and I don't want to to let her thoughts get too stale, um, kind of like that. Bear claw pastry sitting in the microwave. Okay. All right, so, <laughs> it's so been rewind. there for like three days. Um, <laughs> so.
1: All right, so, so Helen, I'll, I'll put it this way. Yeah, do, do you just to get us sort of kick started off? Do, do you have anything you want to talk with David about, either about his opening speech or, or that sort of, or in the light of your your own methodological approach?
2: Sure. Um... So to some extent, because David's positioned his speech today, because you've positioned your speech within ethics and moral philosophy um, and some extent history, I feel um, a little tentative about um, addressing you too closely on those because, as I said, um, I don't feel an expert on those. Well, one question I would like to or challenge you on a little bit, I guess, is um, is your description of, of what happens, of, of God's conversation with um, in the garden with Adam and Eve. Um, and you said, I think you paraphrased it as, if you cross me, I will kill you. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. And I, I wonder if you think that this alternative could be uh, an equally plausible exploration. Um, that if, um, if the garden is a place of um, blissful innocence and that blissful innocence is, is to be disrupted when they disobey, um, is, is the, the promise or threat, whichever way you like to phrase it, of death um, necessarily a curse, or might it even be a mercy? I don't want to live forever in this world. Um, this world is just too painful. Um, and I wonder if, if that death is, yeah. I mean, we see, we see violent death in, in the very next chapter, as you know, we see Cain and Abel and then Lamech.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I, I wonder if is that really a, a curse of god and and I notice that they don't die that day they don 't drop down dead in in punishment, but a life a a um, a limitation is placed on their lifespan.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, might that even be an act of divine mercy
0: well, i don't think um that I could see it that way. I mean, that's a, that's a nice attempt and it's a uh, kind of a new one (laughs) on me. So I appreciate that. Let me just clarify though. Um, I'm not a philosopher. Um, I'm not a scholar. I'm an old country preacher (laughs) now retired. (laughs) So um, I don't know that that uh, qualifies me for much of anything except a guy who has spent (laughs) mint Misspent much of his youth reading the Bible. Um, <laughs> that said, I I do think that's a a bit of a reach. Uh, you know, this is this is doesn't read like God saying, you know, if if you go wrong, I'm going to have to commit a mercy killing, um, because things will just be too bad for you. So I'll take you out. In in fact, I w- I think the story would read better if that's w- what it was saying. Um, if, if God had said, you know what, sin has entered the world. Sin is too bad of a consequence. Most people are going to die and experience whatever, you know, people interpret hell to be, uh, later on. This cannot go on. I am going to stop the human project right here. That would have been a better, more merciful, more moral story. That is not the one we got, though. Um... (laughs) So I, I, I do believe that it was a threat of punishment, not a, uh, not a speaking of mercy.
2: Okay.
0: Well, once uh, again, that's what we got. So in the very next chapter, or, or two chapters from the beginning, what do we see God doing? We see him handing out punishments. So before God said, I love you, God gives a threat of punishment i I do think that does set the tone of the Bible, this God of love he he creates humans and he doesn't spend the first thousand years hugging them. He spends the first five minutes threatening them
2: hmm. i i i do see what you're saying um although I, I I think I stand by my point about about the death thing but but it out to what you're saying about he doesn't spend he spends the first five minutes threatening them. I don't know you see. The, the whole, the creation account itself is, is an act of extraordinary hospitality, and remembering that we need to set it against the other ancient Near Eastern uh, creation accounts, which were violent, um, horrific affairs, um, where humankind was created to be a slave... Um, in this account, this is a, an act of divine hospitality and generosity, where humankind is is created to, to govern as as vice regents. So I would say that God's opening word is absolutely I love you, um, which I I appreciate doesn't doesn't address everything you're saying. But but I yeah I think that's how I want to respond to that. Okay,
0: sure. But God's God could have said I love you instead of leaving us to pick that out in a literary sense and. As far as an act of hospitality, once again, I appreciate that point of view. I have heard it before, that I have heard before. I don't. I still don't think that that fits... Uh, I don't think that's a fair reading of the text, though, because we're not actually told why God created it. We're left to assume why God created it. And so if you start with you know, faith in God is good and, you know, you're making some assumptions about his motives, you can tell yourself a good story about why he created it, but we don't in fact know that it wasn't, even by the, the idea of the storytellers, not an act of violence. Uh, The Earth was without form and void. Some suspect that that uh, was because of the first war, the war in heaven, and we don't know exactly why humans uh, and this realm was created in the midst of that, but it was in the midst of violence and war. Um, and we see some of the signs of that in creation. Uh, it's not just some benign, hmm, I think I'll create something today. Um, there seems to be a subtext and a mixing of ancient stories and you know, a lot that's not fleshed out there. So whereas, I, I guess I can say, as far as headcanon goes, you can say that it was an act of hospitality and nonviolence, but there's also plenty in the story that allows you to... Read it a different way, too, and I would just say that that's something that we are not explicitly told. Um, and so I can't i I don't feel comfortable just accepting that theory uh, simply because that's the one that we would like it to be.
2: Hmm. I, I, I accept that we, we do have um, we have a mixture we we do have these echoes of these other. Creation myths in there, and I think that you know, without form and void, that is that that's pre-creational chaos. Um, I think there is not a hint, not a hint in there of violence, though. Um, we have, you know, all the other myths; they are of the gods warring, and there's nothing of that there. And we have the divine fiat speaking um, you know, over the chaos. We have the pushing back of the chaos. We have the waters separating. That's that's a, 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 an established motif of of ancient Near Eastern um, creation, separation of waters, the, the clearing of chaos for dry land to emerge. Um, I genuinely don't see anything of, of violence in there. Well, do you,
0: I, you, I well. mean, you might be right. I, I just don't think that we can make the definitive statement that it's not, because we're not given that explicitly. We're left to figure it out. And I, I would ask just as a, an aside, because I never get a chance to ask Christians these things, so... Thanks for being here to answer this. Um, Why do you suppose God, um, in in this story, made man in the midst of this chaos? Why not deal with the devil first? Why not deal with evil first? Because we're kind of led to believe that if it wasn't for the fact that there was devil and war in heaven and you know e- evil happening anyway, that that maybe things would have been different for humans. Um, this the story of Eden wasn't simply of humans going off and doing the wrong thing; it was them being tempted by God's ancient foe. They felt like it felt like they were pawns in a war that they didn't know about and weren't prepared for. And so, if it was the way you're describing it, why not deal with this Satan fellow first instead of giving him free access to this new, perfectly benign creation?
2: Well, now you're asking me to solve the, one of the fundamental metaphysical problems. Of the <laughs>
0: no, you, <laughs>
2: you, you, you had
0: a theory a minute ago. I'm just wondering if you have a theory for this.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, think I can say, but, but i not explain I mean, what I would say is I think it's important we don't um, entirely conflate chaos and evil. There is something... There is something um, in the ancient, as best I understand, and you know I'm a twenty first century twenty first century dweller, not an ancient Near Eastern um, theologian. um, But as best I understand the ancient view, chaos is not inherently evil. It does kind of threaten the order of creation, and order is a very important um, value that the ancient Near East holds, and so. Creation as, as an ordering event is, is is of prime importance. And chaos threatens that. And we certainly see um, through the Hebrew Bible, we see chaos pushing back in. So God at this point clears chaos and pushes chaos and bounds it. And then it chaos comes back in again, the flood, and then he bounds it again. And we see this repeated action, this repeated thing happens again at the um, Exodus. And and I think elsewhere as well. So so it is in some senses threatening. But I don't think I'd want to say it's evil. Um as, as conceived by our writers, and we need to be, I think we need to answer the question within the worldview that, that they're trying to set out for us if if if, if that's the conversation we if that's where we're levelling our conversation at the moment. Um, now the serpent, however, obviously is is a threat to to that and is challenging God's words. And the serpent clearly does link to the chaos monsters, the Leviathan, um, and the dragons and so on that we read elsewhere in the Bible and elsewhere in in ancient literature. So, yes, there is this this kind of um, antagonist figure, but... uh, yeah, but the chaos itself somehow isn't inherently evil, I think, and I think the the, the idea of Satan is is a developing one, and is quite ill formed in the Old Testament, and really comes into into focus much more clearly in the Gospels.
1: Oh, we absolutely uh, agree on that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing. <laughs> Um, one, one thing I, I would like to maybe have you guys go back and forth uh, on, so, so David gave about three points, so starting with his first point, he, he seems to be saying that the Bible uh, seems to actually promote violence as, as though it's a good thing, and you know, he gave certain examples, so I was just wondering if, if you wanted to sort of come back on that and, and maybe contrast it um, with other ancient Near Eastern texts uh, that have similar violent things, are, are there differences between that and the Bible, which shows that the Bible doesn't promote violence versus them.
2: Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, Yes, if I... One thing I perhaps maybe should have started with this in terms of responding. Um, David, you say that the Bible, biblical violence disqualifies the Bible as a useful tool for moral enlightenment. And I think to a large extent, I agree with you. I think the way I would phrase it's slightly different. And I think I would say that the Bible is not primarily to be regarded as a tool for moral enlightenment. I don't think that's the purpose of it. Um, I don't think that's what it's written for. I certainly don't think that many of the ancient texts are intended that way. Um, we probably get a bit closer to it in in, in the epistles, perhaps, and in, in the words of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. But that's not the primary intention of the ancient text. Actually, Can I just read one sentence, maybe it's two sentences, from John Walton, who, who puts this really beautifully sure. in a book that I really recommend um, to anyone who's interested, which is The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest. And he says this. If we, if we adopted, if we obeyed the particular instructions of the Old Testament text, we would become good citizens of the ancient Near East. If we obeyed the particular instructions of the New Testament text, we become good citizens of classical Rome, but what we're supposed to be is good citizens of the modern West. And so, actually, to 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 try and use the tool, the Bible, as a tool for modern enlightenment, I think is, to a large extent, long headed. So I think, actually, David, I I agree with you to considerably extent on that opening point. Um,
0: well, that's no fun. <laughs> <sorry about> <laughs> there there goes fifteen minutes of uh, my rebuttal. <laughs> <That's laughs>
2: I, I don't agree with all the points you made under
0: <laughs> it. All right.
2: <laughs> um so you wanted me to talk, um Dale, you wanted you supposed me to talk about um the promotion of violence. Um yeah, perhaps the law of Talion, it would be a good example. Um, I think that might be what you invited inviting me to talk about, actually. Um, so we have um, a number of other ancient codes um, written around the same time that we have access to. Um, and the Code of, of Hammurabi is one of them, and it's one of the best preserved ones. And uh, there's quite a lot of similarity between some of the ancient laws of, of Israel and the Code of Hammurabi. Um but there are some quite striking differences. Um, and one of them is the, the poor old misunderstood <laughs> and misrepresented law of Italian, which is the eye for, for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing. Um, now, I'll, I'll come on to what I think Jesus is saying in a minute. Um, and I don't, I'm don't not for a minute dismissing what he says. Um, but nonetheless, I think his 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 comments have have given us license to say oh what a brutal brutal thing that is actually the lot italian um, is is a remarkable thing it makes it limits personal vengeance and uh, i don't know if you're familiar with the work of gregirard who's who's i think is very powerful in explanatory terms for how human societies work when he talks about how we tend to mirror one another in our violence, and violence escalates and escalates. And, and this is essentially, it's, 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 a, it's a philosophy of, of, of vengeance. And the law of Italian limits vengeance. It means that vengeance is taken in um, measured quantities. It is reciprocal. It may not be triangulated um, onto a third person um, it is it is um, commensurate. It is not not allowed to escalate it. Um, it is um, and it is operated within a community setting, a sort of quasi judicial setting. It isn't um, a a license for um, a blood um, feud, which is and in is in, 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 in essentially. I think it is it is for operating to prevent uh, blood feuds. Um, now, in contrast to that, the, the law of Hammurabi, which is, you know, one of the other, as I say, one of the other laws around in the ancient world at that time, um, they have all sorts of places. They have they have elements where Italian sounds, you sound as if you're getting a little bit of that, but then they have all sorts of places where actually punishments are allowed, which are massively triangulated and massively. Um, um, augmented. So, classic example of the punishment of for a rapist, at least in some instances, is to rape his wife. Um, if a builder builds a house, this is from memory, so it could be just slightly wrong. But if a builder builds a house and the house um, falls down and, and kills um, the people who are living there, um, the punishment is that his fam- his his building will be pulled down around his family, and his family will be impaled on the in, in the wreckage of it um you know this is this is triangulation this is extending the vengeance onto onto third parties so the law talion hugely limits that and I, as i say i think it's misunderstood and i think the reason it's misunderstood is that we stand in a day when um because of the because of the good laws that we have in in our countries and because of the way that we have as societies we we now govern ourselves um, we don't uh, generally exercise personal vengeance, and and uh, and you know there's a judicial system to deal with things. And so we look back on Talion and think, gosh, that's a bit primitive. And we look ahead to what Jesus says, which is an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, uh, no, which is love your neighbour to turn your turn the other cheek. I beg your cheek, and pardon, love your enemy to turn your other cheek. And we look ahead to that and see that as something that we haven't yet attained. And so we see Talion and. And what Jesus says as being pulling in opposite directions, if you like. I think a better way of looking at it is seeing um, Talion as a significant advance for its day, which, which Jesus continues the trajectory of. So he's, you know, it was said to you, limit your personal vengeance. But I say to you now, let's move it on, chaps. Um, I say to you now, um, love your enemy, turn the other cheek
1: okay uh, and David did you did you have anything to say on that front uh, yourself oh you know I have plenty to say about
0: the teachings <laughs> of Jesus um, <laughs> I will try to avoid that here that's not what this podcast is about but um, I would l- let me just go back before I before I come in on any of this um, because I think that d- the first part of Dale's question is important and I would like to get some color on that before I before I give some of my own thoughts he wanted to have you feedback on my idea that the Bible didn't just allow violence but promoted it yeah. um, and so I, I didn't hear you speak to that uh, specifically Do
2: no, you want to say more? Do you want
0: me to... Yes, I, no I want you to um, I want, to I want you to tell me uh, that you agree with that or you disagree with it but you can disarm <laughs> me greatly by just agreeing with me uh Nat- no, natalie no, collins used this not to not strategy to her, her advantage she just agreed with me on things and then shut me up <laughs>
1: <when that> never <laughs> David, it's always a dangerous uh <laughs> <laughs> <Well, I can't laughs>
2: so sorry. uh sorry you back up a little bit that i wasn't sure what you said but uh it's it's um, okay I that's do... how
0: he always sounds even when he's clear <laughs>
2: <laughs> i do partly agree with you uh um, you, you make a really, I think, a really perceptive point about, um, effectively about consequentialist ethics, about you know, sometimes I think we look, and I, I read quite a bit about this, as, as you might imagine, and I see other people saying you know, well, this is the end game, and the best way of achieving it in, in society of the day is, you know God says, well this is kind of a the least damaging way of doing it. And, and so there's this kind of necessary violence in order to achieve it. And, and I have to say, I'll read that. I'm breaking up. Oh,
0: no, go ahead. Um, it, it's okay. I think, I think those are just um, artifacts from the past bits of conversation we had. Don't worry about them. Think of it as uh, time travel gone bad. Uh, go ahead and go ahead with your point. <laughs> By the way, all time travel would go bad, so let's never do it. <laughs> Absolutely.
2: <Yeah. laughs> um, so I hear those arguments, and and I have to say I feel really uncomfortable with them. I, I do agree with that problem of I don't believe God needs to be a utilitarian. Um, so yes, you 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 have me. I, there's a question there I really don't have an answer to, and I continue to baffle with and In fact, I've got a small stack of books on my table in my office about consequentialist ethics and and and, and what, what what God is doing might be doing there. And one day, <laughs> when I have leisure, I will look at that question more carefully and think about it, and and then I'll come back with a killer answer. But I don't have one on that one at the moment. I'm afraid. Okay. Um, in terms of some of the other points, do you want me to? Go ahead.
0: Well, okay. So I tell you what. Let me let me pause you there, and I will I will put in some of my observations from what I heard you say because I think that we are, as we talk about this, uh, even though we had different speeches um, uh, and different ideas written at different times, I think we're starting to draw in on some central uh, themes. David,
1: you're breaking up again?
0: Oh no, I'm fine. You're breaking up. It's all relative, you see? (laughs) I have no idea. Okay.
1: You're you're, you're back. Oh, okay.
0: Good. Uh, Are you able to hear me, uh, Helen?
2: I can hear you, David. I can't hear Dale so well.
0: Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. Um, Blame Dale, okay. Yes, absolutely. It's easier that way. Just...
1: So much <laughs> easier. Well, I'm always yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so sorry. Yeah, if you just want to repeat what, what you were saying there. No, just... that's
0: fine. I think that our arguments are uh our our um ideas are going to meet somewhere here, so that even though we wrote different speeches at different times, um I I think that we're coming to a place where they join uh as it were. So I had I had three questions slash observations from from your uh opening comments helen and they are uh it's so they are addressing things that you said but you basically opened up pandora's uh box is it pandora's box that you opened um one of those boxes with bad stuff in it um uh and so uh I might be asking you to speak on much broader topics than um, what you had planned for. Feel free to reel me in. But uh, I wrote down three things, one of them, objective morality. So it, it almost sounded um, as if you were saying, well, you know, what what's good for them wasn't necessarily good for us. And what's good for us is not necessarily good for them. So I get that. I, and just so you know, I'm not an objective moralist. So I don't actually believe that because I don't believe in a God and I don't believe in something that is somehow holding the center on what is moral and what is not. I think that um, that is something that we uh, agree on societally. I think it evolves uh, as we evolve. And that's, that's why a thing is moral in a pack of wolves that may not be moral in a school of fish. Um, okay. so it's not just you know they're animals and we're humans, even uh, among different animals there are different things that you would consider ethical within that um that that species and maybe even that mm. place where the where that particular school uh you know murder of geese or whatever we're talking about uh where that is uh so that said. Christians are always beating we atheists about the head and shoulders with this objective morality, and it sounds like they kind of want to have it both ways uh, a little bit and so i I want to kind of hear you comment on well are, are these things objective or not um was when when the Bible talks about you know d- demonstrates God saying this thing or giving this command or so forth. Uh, was he speaking from some kind of sense of objective uh, uh, morality, or was there no such thing? Um, were we skeptics right all along? Uh, let me just give you the <laughs> let me give you the other two uh, while I'm at it, because they're not all that dissimilar. Um, uh, another note that I wrote down was representatives of God or not. So once again, I I hear you saying, um, well, I hear my Christian friends and colleagues saying things like the Bible is the word of God. And uh, so great. And the the prophets were people of God who spoke on God's behalf. David is called um, a man after God's own heart. Abraham was a friend of God. Um, The prophets were spokesmen of God. Uh, It seems like You want to have it kind of both ways, though, by saying, well, these were just humans speaking out of their humanity. Were they representing God or were they not? Um, And so that's something that I think needs to be cleared up. And then the last thing, also very similar to this, hyperbole, Mm -hmm. Um, even if I bought the hyperbole argument, which I do not, um, so that is not a new one for me, and maybe we can talk about that some more. I, I don't actually buy it, though. But even if I did, but, so forget about the fact that I don't buy it. It's It doesn't mitigate the violent things that the hyperbole says. So just to, just to give you um, a sense of that, uh, if I am talking about uh, violence in the Middle East, and maybe there's been some events that have happened recently maybe bombings of some kind and it's gotten me emotionally exercised and i say something like i want all those ragheads dead and i want them to die violently with their entrails pulled from reached into their throat and pulled out and i want them gut it and i want their women gut it and i want their unborn babies ripped out i'm I'm trying to think of Just how obscene I can make this without the FCC um, (laughs) coming in to stop me here. Um, And I hope that some of that diatribe was um, offensive a little bit. Yeah, Um, but artfully so, because I don't actually hope any of those things. Well, but in and, and you could say, well, but he's he was very upset and you know, maybe he had a relative uh, that was killed there, and he doesn't really mean all that. But that would not change the obscenity of what I said. And it would not change the the attitude and overall uh oeuvre of violence that I am portraying. And so you can say, well, you know, when when God said kill all the Amlekites. He didn't actually mean all the Amalekites. Well, I don't care if he actually meant all the Amalekites. It was still obscene if he meant to kill one. It doesn't make it better. You're not, when, yeah. when Donald Trump says, hey, I was, you know, it's just locker room talk, it doesn't make it better. And I think that Christians use this hyperbole argument as if to say, you see, that makes it all better. No, it doesn't. All right. Those, those are my okay. points. Go ahead. <laughs>
2: i'm going to take them in reverse order i think okay um if i may um and and to be fair i did say it doesn't make it all better i did definitely say that um old old country
0: preacher coming out there don't don't worry about that (laughs) i'm better um, now
2: (laughs) i um so let me tease that out a little bit um if we are talking about the difference between speech and action, I, I do think there's a difference. I do think there's a difference when the psalmist sa- sounds off. Um, and I think it's better for the psalmist to sound off to God than go and take up a sword and do it. Um, I think it's better for a psalmist to, to say the sorts of things you were just saying than to go and do those things. So, yes, I don't I don't, I don't think we want to hear that. that, but it's better than doing it. Uh, and I I could say more about the sums, so perhaps I've thought about that a bit more, but um but in terms of you talked about Hyperbole, I think probably picking up my point about the conquest in particular. Um, I, and I and I agree, it doesn't make the problem go away, and I and I, I was quite explicit about that. However, um, I don't know. The more deaths, the worse. So, yes, I, I wish Joshua had not killed a person. I wish I could read that and read that he they peacefully coexisted with the Canaanites, or they went and made peace terms with them, and the Canaanites mutual agreement to to move on. I, I wish that's what I read. Um, that's not what I read. So I only think it makes it a little bit better, but I do think that well one of the things one of the issues is actually the language of that was often dis, uh, translated as totally destroy and it doesn't mean totally destroy and um and so i don't think Joshua did go blazing into these places slaughtering everyone in in his wake um i do think there were deaths and and i wish they weren't i do think there were deaths but he it doesn't mean just totally destroy everybody it, it has a much more technical meaning than that um, so yes, I, I, I agree with you that it doesn't make the problem disappear, but I do think it lessens it a little bit. Um, going backwards to your second point representatives possessives of God or not. Um, I assume that you're talking about those people whose words constitute scripture. So
0: Moses, I, Joshua, Abraham, David, um, The prophets, um, anyone who ever said or vile things in uh, an act of war or retribution in the name of God, where you might say, "Yeah, but that wasn't really God," I don't care if it was really God; it was God's man.
2: Yeah, I think I think there's a difference between the you see, you see, I would, I want to vest, I want to say, I believe that. The Bible is the Word of God, but that means I am putting, I am vesting the text with authority. So, if the text tells, and maybe you think this is ducking and weaving, and I, and I hope it isn't. But if so, when the prophets um, say something, and the prophet, the prophets, the words of the prophet constitute scripture, then then yes, I think your point is a, a pressing one. When it is the narrator who is telling me, and then David did this and David said that. It is not David per se who is scripture, but is is the narrator who is narrating these events. And the authority of the text or the, the communicative act of the text lies with the narrator. And that allows me to distance myself potentially from what David says and does, for example. Does that make but does that make it make sense?
0: It makes sense, but I I can't accept that ultimately, and it's it's because of the the moral import. Now I know that if you say, well, but it's not it's not meant to be an ethical guide, then you know that defangs much of my argument. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I I get that, but Sorry. if you know, <laughs> but from my perspective, uh, the ethical content of these stories is paramount, and so if, for instance, we have a story narrated. Where it says uh, David, um, you know, basically maneuvered uh, in, in uh, Bichiva's husband to kill him to take his wife. Um, mm-hmm. The story would be uh, incomplete and rather morally objectionable if we didn't have it written in clear and large letters that this was an act of evil that God did not uh, approve of. And, and punished and Christians celebrate the fact that God did not stand for this evil even with the most important man in the world at the time so it's it, they recognize that it's important that the moral messages of these stories be told whether they are narrated or first person uh, you know given by a prophet or whatever so i don't think it gets uh, the christian out of anything to say well this wasn't you know, this, this thing that was told in this narrative um, wasn't necessarily God giving a command or wasn't necessarily God's man speaking in order because it's still a part of the moral landscape of Scripture. And if it's, if it's an awful story without any type of moral judgment implied, and it can be left in a way that it looks like it was condoned by God, I think that's a problem. And I think that's kind of where your argument falls apart. These things can't just sit there and look like they're being condoned; um, otherwise, the, the Bible becomes somewhat useless as as a moral or ethical guide.
2: Yeah, I think I I, I agree with you in principle, but I think that um, that they are condemned far more. Um, often and far more overtly than we we modern readers sometimes notice. Um, and I, I'm absolutely convinced that the narrating of an appalling act does not inherently constitute collusion with that, and that we need to distinguish the um, ethical stance or the, or the ideological stance of the narrator from the... Ethical, strogological stance of the characters um, that he is narrating. Now they may be identical, but they they certainly don't have to be. Can I can I give an example that I kind of was thinking about giving in my opening statement and I yeah. didn't, which yeah. isn't the one you were yeah. talking about, but but it's another one. Right. Well, I, and I, I,
0: I if if I remember it, I'll give you an example of this very point that you're talking about too, um, okay. so that we can we can have dueling examples. Uh, so right. go for it. Do we <laughs> sure. Oh uh, sure, uh, okay. because my memory is really bad and I didn't write it down. So let me just <laughs> let me pull it out. So the the Joseph um, and his brothers uh, situation—they sell him and to beat him up, leave him for dead, sell him to slavery, that kind of thing. Um, well, this is this is narration, uh, right? Mm-hmm. So you—it's one thing to stop at that point and say, "Well, I mean, we can't." put any judgment on the text. It's just giving us a historical narrative of what happened. But that's not true. And that's seldom what's being done in the Bible. The Bible is not written as a a dead history. Um, I agree. It's it's written to teach us things generally theologically. And so that Mm -hmm. story, even though it has horrific details in it, it is paid off by making the very clear statement that what you meant for evil, God meant for good and it and it yeah. puts the moral spin on it that we are to take away from it. And I think the Bible is very careful to do that. And when the Bible doesn't do that, I think that it is also making a kind of moral statement that this wasn't a problem. Unless it's unless it's very obvious that it was, but I think that those I think those statements are being made in the Bible. And so I don't I think that we have to explain them when they're not Made And we can't just say, well, it's, it's just a neutral narration. The Bible doesn't engage in neutral narration.
2: No, I agree. It always tells the story for purpose. I completely agree with that. But I sometimes think that the critique is there and we don't spot it. Sure. Um, so uh, the example I was, so I, I, I agree with you about that. And I think that that's that, that Joseph one. Um, yeah, there's a very nice. Summary of that at the end of Genesis, as as you say. The example that I come back to repeatedly. I'm just going to give a a trigger warning at this point for for listeners. Um, I'm going to. um, I want to talk about the rape of the Levite woman, and I call her woman, not concubine, for technical reasons, but it's kind of um, respect for her because of the history of victim blaming that has gone on in the interpretation of this text in the past, and she may well not have been a concubine, she may have a second wife. Anyway, so I call her the Levite's Woman. Maybe the Levite's Woman in, Jud- in um, Judges 19. Now this is the most, um, I think, the most appalling moment of sexual violence in the um, Bible.
0: Fully agree. And,
2: uh, and if any anyway, if, if listeners need reminding, this this hapless woman is thrown out to a mob um, by her husband's drunk master, gang-raped, um, there's a gap, we're not quite sure. She certainly ends up dead. It's not quite clear whether she dies at the hands of her attackers then or the next morning when her, her husband's stroke master picks her up, takes her home, and members her. So she, she ends up dead, but we're not quite. Quite sure under, yeah.
0: For the listener, think about the story of Lot and the two visitors, uh, the angels that came, and then the crowd saying, "Give us those angels," and Lot saying, "No, no, take my daughters instead." Uh, but in that story, they didn't take the daughters, and in the story that Helen is talking about, they essentially did. Uh, so we yeah. we get a the the picture of exactly what what was on offer there.
2: Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, so, now, this is, this is often described um, as being a, a, a deeply misogynistic um, story. Um, and I, I really am absolutely not persuaded of that for a number of reasons. Um, the first one, quite simple terms, really, is that we all know that the narration of violence does not inherently constitute collusion with violence. You know, think about, I don't know, the book The Colour Purple, sort of almost plucked at random, but a, a book that tells the story of, of terrible sexual violence. And yet, I don't think anybody believes that the, the writer um, is, is endorsing that or colluding with it. The whole thing is set up as a, as, as a critique of, uh, a, a, a condemnation of those acts. So it is possible to narrate an act and take a stance that is um, wholly oppositional to that act now does the writer of judges do that I think the writer of judges does it and I think the clue lies several places in judges but not immediately um, in that in that narrative um, but what we get several places in judges is we get um, this phrase we get it uh, I think it's four times twice in Completely and, and twice in part, but I might have the details slightly wrong. But the phrase is this: in those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And I and I, that's a, a literal translation. So in other words, everyone did what they saw fit. But the, the language of every man did what um, he saw fit is 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 peculiarly appropriate, particularly in this story, I think. So what essentially is going on in the Book of Judges is it is Setting up the need for um, a monarchy, um, and it is showing us how this land spirals into chaos without um, a godly leader, and and so this and this story then has been selected to make that point. So, by the very nature of that selection, there is a condemnation of those actions. But even more than that. Um, I think there is something else that we shouldn't miss here. Um, Judith Butler um, talks about the idea of grievability. And she says that you, the measure of a society is in whose lives it considers grievable. So if I think about, um, you know, who 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 is in the news, whose death is in the news um, at the moment in, in the UK, I particular individuals. Um, and yet, you know, tens of thousands of people are dying daily because of disease in other parts of the world and because of um, war in other parts of the world, and their lives are not really grievable in British society. And so, Judith Butler says this is a way of analysing a society, really. Now, so if we start to think about that story and this woman who is at at her the most elevated that she could possibly be is is a second is a second wife. Um, but may well just be a concubine. Um, and we think, who whose life is grievable here? And and not, not only grievable, but exemplary in terms of... So, so, so I'll put it a different way. I would have thought in a patriarchal society, which this undoubtedly was, um, with a writer writing with a patriarchal presupposition, which he undoubtedly is, that if he wanted to prove to me just how wicked Israel has become, he would give me a story of a high-ranking man being abused, and he doesn't. He gives me a story of a woman, which isn't surprising, which is surprising itself, and of a of a of a, of a concubine or a secondary wife. That's the story he chooses as his. Um, as his crowning, um, I'm going to mix my force as the final nail in the coffin of Israel's degradation, um, he chooses the story of this woman, which makes her eminently grievable. And so I think that although a surface immediate reading of this text might make us think, oh, gosh, what an appalling, what an appalling story, yes, but what an appalling world, what an appalling narrator, what a dreadful book this is. Um actually, I think that the way this story is told, which I haven't had time to, to talk about, but, and the inclusion of this story, in, in a world where we are very familiar with Me Too and the importance that victims are not brushed under the carpet um, and that their voices are heard, that their stories are told, and that this story is chosen, says something about the tenderness with which she is held and, and the extraordinary tenderness then, which I would not expect, So, sorry, I hope I didn't go on too long there, but, so, so I don't think, I I think the critique, the criticism, the condemnation of violence is sometimes not as overt, it's not a huge flag in the text, but I still think it's there more than we realize sometimes.
0: Okay, well, I can agree with that fully. Um, I don't think that mitigates all of the times when it's not, but... Uh, of course yeah but but, I, but you're but I, I agree I think that that's a beautiful reading of that story uh, an artful reading of the story. I don't I don't actually know if that's what the author had in mind or not but I like to think so you make a good case for it and I don't Thanks. see any reason to uh, argue against that case. So uh, I, I give you all of that without ceding any. Any prior ground. <laughs>
1: so. There is, there is um, one interesting thing, Dave. Like um, Helen asks in her number seven, um, you know, do we really want a God that is wholly violent? And you, in your case, okay, here's a possible case where violence as a last resort could be justified. But then you say, in God's case, there's always another option. So. I was just wondering if you guys wanted to discuss that. Is that actually the case? Is there ever, uh, are there, are there cases in the Bible where God is justified in, in using violence?
0: So um, can, can I, can I go first on, on that one? Yeah, I was, I was yeah, hoping I so. that we would be able to get to it. Um, so um, let me just, let me start by saying I'm not a pacifist. Um, I, I do believe in just war. And I actually do believe in the death penalty, even though I used it in my argument to beat the Christians about the head and shoulders. Yeah, so, <laughs> because, <laughs> so I, I'm a bad man. Uh, um, I it. So, <laughs> Go but but, but, um, but I'm being honest about it. Um, but. He, but I also think that these things are weaknesses in the Christian argument, so I'm, I'm pointing them out in the way that I do. But that said, um, I, I qualify all of this um, because we're humans and by nature limited in uh, what we can do. So there are times when I think the only way to safeguard society sufficiently is to kill that which threatens it sufficiently. And I think that was probably even sure uh, in, in times when we didn't have the, the ability to, to curtail human behavior as much as we do now. Um, so I do think that there are times when the only thing we can do is, is the ultimate act. And in terms of war, uh, I do believe that there are people who, uh, in, in nations that behave so badly against humanity, you you, you do everything you can to make them stop. Um, and the situation is too great to ignore, and we are too limited to stop it by any other means. Uh, so I think that I think that once again. Uh, there, are, there are situations where violence is necessary in the human context because that's all we have left. And, mm. and so th-
1: this,
0: is, this is the nuance that I'm, that I'm making here in my argument. So I, I wasn't just arguing for the sake of poking a stick in your eye. Um, I am saying that if your God is real, he has other options available to him that we do not. And there is at least one situation in the Bible, one little obscure example in one of those crazy little wars, um, where he chooses the nonviolent method, just if, if only just to show us what all he has available at his disposal, um, Mm -hmm. a, a group of, uh, you know, enemies are, are, you know, on some godless battlefield and, um, there's a a funny little wording, they wake up and behold, they are all dead. (laughs) So, um, you know, God just just erases them. He just makes them dead. (laughs) Um, No need to stick a a sword in them. Uh, He has the option to do that sort of thing. And yet the vast majority of times he uh, he chooses the violent option. And so, yeah, when you when you can make up science fiction and you can mm-hmm. say anything is possible, then you should be making other things possible besides the violent thing. So that's that's kind of where I'm coming from there, uh a more a fuller view of my perspective.
2: Yeah. And and I mean there's one or two things I'd like to say about that, but in the, in the main, I say I don't know. <laughs> Let me say one or two things. Um, I, I'm interested that you, uh, when you were talking about this obscure little war, I thought you were going to come up with a different example. Um, the different example being, um, well, there uh, are two actually. One where a group of uh, attacking army hears the sound of chariots and thinks they're being attacked and flees. Um, and so the, the war is over because they're not being really attacked <clears throat> at that point. And the other, which is similar, because so I call that an auditory hallucination. The other one, which is a visual hallucination, where they um, the sun rises and they think they see um, they think they see blood everywhere and they think there's been a bit of slaughter and they flee. Um, and again, it, it wasn't. It was it was a trick. And so those now those instances, yes, God steps in and there is no violence when they wake up dead. <laughs> um, he 's not using human violence, but he 's still using violence so so I suppose I want to maybe I want to I want to press your point more
0: um. <laughs> well, So yes, these are not perfect examples to be sure. in fact, I would I would say that even creating hallucinations where a person thinks something horrendous is going on is a type of violence too. Um, but yes, these are, um, these are funny little things that just show the scope and depth of what's possible. So that's, that's yeah. all I'm saying there. So when, yeah. so sometimes when I say, oh, but God has other options, Christians say, well, no, what other option do you have? And I say, read your Bible. Uh, <laughs> you know, this isn't just me, uh, pushing my science fiction agenda on on your worldview. This is your book, and it demonstrates Mm -hmm. God with these types of superpowers that he can do if he was so inclined. So you can't just say that God doesn't have any other options like humans do. You've got to come up with an actual reason uh, why he chooses the violent option when he doesn't have to. Yeah,
2: and and I I agree that I think this is a very difficult question. Um, I think and here i'm I'm very very nervously straying much more into sort of systematic theology and philosophy than I am competent to do so i'm going to make a very brief fray and then defend quickly and not try and defend and not try, sorry retreat quickly and not try and defend this book really but but in terms of um, now in terms of his use of humans to to do violence i really yeah i I really struggle with that and I don't know how to square that circle um in terms of god being whether we can imagine or even whether we would want a god who is wholly non-violent um himself i'm i'm not persuaded we do i mean i think i think that and i know and i know you're going to press the point and say he could do it another way and and yes I, i guess he could but you know, thinking about the parenting metaphor you know as a small child you want a parent that will snatch you aggressively out of danger you know, even if it involves dislocating your elbow to do so sort of thing, or, you know, or who will defend you um, with violence if necessary. Um, I certainly, I I certainly want a God who will put an end to evil. And I don't know how, maybe this is just a limitation of my mind, but I don't know how he can put an end to evil without... um, Without violence now what that violence looks like i, I you know th- th- there's a range of options there, but at the ver- it has to be coercive i don't see how we can possibly put an end to evil without coercion, which is violence um so maybe this is a failure of my moral imagination um but in the end i I think we need a god who will be coercive, otherwise evil would run rampant however the the more particular point of why god uses humans and swords and so on um i don't know (laughs) yeah
0: so so just just sticking with the why god use humans points for a moment because Mm -hmm. these are two different points that you're making and they're both worthy of discussion um i i do find that one of the more vile aspects of biblical violence in the, in the nature of God. Um, because it is one thing to say an awful thing has to be done. It is another thing to say, I want you to go out and do the awful thing that has to be done. Um, and so I don't actually accept the, the first premise that the awful thing has to be done. Certainly not, um, as, as, dictated in many Bible stories, but even if that were the case, if if the Amalekites needed to be weeded out, they did not need to be weeded out by sword. They could have been weeded out very surgically. For instance, only the evil ones could, could have been uh, sure. weeded out, and how could they have been weeded out? They could have just vanished from the earth. They didn't even have to drop dead. They could just be unmade. Um, so there's, I mean, this is a, this is an option, right? Um, and, Mm -hmm. and God never has to call, look at how Ananias and Sapphira, uh, Mm. left this mortal coil. Now, granted, they were carried off and presumably dumped in some hole, but God didn't call on Peter to take out his sword, which he was clearly bad at using, um, (laughs) and, um, and, you know, lop their head off. And (laughs) I say this. Kind of comically, but think about the, the moment in the garden where Peter's swinging the sword. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't going for the man's ear. He's, he's, he's going for the man's head. He's just bad <laughs> with the sword. <laughs> he mixed the ear. I mean, come on. So clearly God says, okay, you're not the instrument for this. I'm just going to do this for myself. He could have done all of it himself, and it would have been cleaner and more just uh, and, and more surgical. Uh, than to have people rolling around in uh, you know iron chariots versus wooden chariots, um, and uh, you know the guy with the iron chariot wins. Uh, that that doesn't make any sense to me if we're talking about a god without limits.
2: Yeah, no, I, I I'm I'm slightly um, flabbergasted that Ananias and Sapphira are being held up as a as, as a sort of semi-ideal rather than the most, you know, they're generally regarded as, as, as a bad text. We
0: didn't want three-chop Peter hacking at him. <laughs> that would have been bad.
2: Well, yeah. Um, but I, I, I accept the point, I and I have wrestled with it myself i wonder and i have this little theory but it's an undeveloped theory and you will not be sympathetic to it at all oh you would be but surprised my, well no because you're going to say it's max's special pleading and maybe it does and it's undeveloped but i have this it's probably going to please nobody this theory actually but i have this theory that um that in a number of places, we, we do see we see recurring patterns in the Old Testament. And I mentioned the creation, decreation, recreation one earlier. We see a number of recurring patterns. And one pattern we see recurring is of God making a promise to somebody and them thinking that God needs a helping hand to make that happen. Um, so, you know, Sarah and Abraham or um, um, Jacob, you know, ousting Esau and, and so on. You know, we, they 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 see the the goal, they see the end game, and then they think they'll give God a helping hand, and they they'll, they work, they can't sit and wait patiently. Now I, and I know I know what you're going to say is that God says to, to to Joshua, go and do this, but I am still looking hard at these texts and wondering if there was an element where actually Israel is to a large extent taking matters into their own hands, and had they but waited. Um, it it would have been unnecessary for them to have been quite so military, militaristic. Now I I can't defend that at the moment. It's just uh, and, and I'm probably very foolish even saying it out loud when I haven't, you know, got that really... Oh,
0: don't worry. Yeah. Nobody and nobody in our audience is going to take you to task for that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> All right. Um, you heard you heard me, Brian. You heard me, Darren. Behave. Down. <laughs> yeah. You know but who I, you are.
1: I, I think it's great. Thank you, Helen, for, for actually sharing that because it, it's, it's good. It's, it, this is another consideration to factor in and see if it provides uh, a partial part of the answer um, on these, you know, these t- hard texts and that sort of thing.
0: Believe so, it or not, I actually don't have a problem with that theory if you're willing to throw the Bible under the bus that's the problem but well but see that but that's true you have to kind of do one or the other you can say well yes these people jumped the gun and did what they weren't supposed to but then you have to say well all of the passages that said god told them to do this were wrong so you can have your theory and throw the Bible under the bus, or...
2: Well, I'm working on, I'm working on having my cake and eating it, okay. actually. <laughs> but you can you at least
0: understand why I would say that, right?
2: <laughs> I, I totally understand why you would say that. <laughs> but um, no, I'm not willing to throw the Bible under the bus, which is why I don't just say, well, this is obviously the case. Um, but I still, I still um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs>
0: yeah, okay, so... Um, oh. So God, God using humans, it seems like there was something else to be teased out there and just talking it louder. God using humans to do kind of dirty work. And then was it necessary to do all that dirty work um, in the first place? So, um, yeah, things like um, the Can- uh, Canaan, the, the Promised Land. Uh, one, of the, one of the most horrendous things I find about the Jewish religion is that it was based on this promise of a land grant. Uh, and mm-hmm. the problem is the land belonged to someone else. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can justify taking it if you say, oh, yeah. well, God said we could have it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's convenient. Uh, we, can, we can't roll back the tape and verify that one way or the other. But it seems that's to funny. me that if God wanted you to have that land, and he never wanted like like some people would say uh, I think uh, Greg Greg Boyd uh, would be in this camp um, I think I've got the name right where he might say something like oh, well God never wanted war he, he wanted to drive people out he didn't want to you know f- fight people out but that's that's kind of um, that's that's a terrible answer honestly because if all God wanted to do was nonviolently drive people out of the land he could have just done it The the land could have been ready for occupation with no people on it by the time his people got there. And God could have just pushed them out uh, by Mm -hmm. any magical means he wanted to. Uh, One of the Mm -hmm. things that I suggested was... Uh, He could have made um, the land so that it didn't produce food, and they had to keep going north or south or whichever direction they were going until they found land that would produce, and they would be driven out naturally, and then their land could be occupied. And then he could put a a magical force field, a fence, kind of like the one that we suggest uh, was in the Garden of Eden, and the enemies (laughs) couldn't re-enter. Uh, with any harm in their heart, it could have been anything like that. Those, all of those elements are in the story that we read, that, that that we call the Bible. It's all there. God does all of these types of things at some point or other. So once again, this is not me playing f- fast and loose with my imagination. I'm just picking up elements that are already in the story. God had yeah. these options available, so it's not good enough to say that he was he, he wanted a nonviolent occupation and those wicked people just wouldn't leave their land. By the way, can you imagine Trump rolling up tanks to Mexico saying, um, yeah, we're taking over Mexico, and I just want to drive you out? Uh, yeah. Peace. Well, how how special pleady is that?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I hear it. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, so I'm just going to put the latch on because it's getting dark here in England. Hold on. Um. A couple of things uh, to say to that and none of this as i've said before none of this is going to add up to a whole answer but a couple of comments um oh i've completely lost my thread on the first one i wanted to say sorry bear with me a second take your time it was the shortest one i wanted to say that on first um Oh, I'll come. I'll, I might come back to that one. I'll, let me say the other second one anyway. Um, um, I, I said in my opening statement that um, actions have. Oh yeah. Okay. Can I can I come back to my first point First. I've yes. It. Right. Um, there is a moment in chapter I think it's six of Joshua, but around about there, um, right on the eve of the Battle of Jericho which is obviously the first battle of the conquest and in a sense, kind of the archetypal battle of the conquest. Um, and I think, I think we, we tend to overlook it sometimes and fail to appreciate quite how significant it is. And it's this moment where Joshua is on the eve of the um, battle of Jericho and he can't sleep and he goes out and, and he meets this bloke um, with a drawn sword. And he doesn't know that he is speaking to an angel. And, um, and he says, Friend or foe, essentially. Now, if he had been if he if he knew he was speaking to an angel, he would not have asked that question because Joshua has, as the text tells the story, Joshua has never had one moment's reason to doubt that God is wholly on his side. You know, he's, he's come out of Egypt, the plagues, the Passover, the Red Sea. They've wandered in the desert and been fed miraculously. They've received the covenant at Sinai. They've crossed the Jordan miraculously. And not at one moment in that story has there been the slightest glimmer of doubt in his mind that God is 100% on his side. And yet he meets this guy. He doesn't know it's an angel, and therefore he says, friend or foe. And the angel replies, as I'm sure you know, Neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord's host, I have come. Now, I think we sometimes rush over that because we yeah. are looking to get onto the blowing of the trumpets and the crumbling of the walls. But um, but actually, I think that this is a verse which, first of all, should absolutely stagger us, um, as surely it must have staggered that such a comment is... We are supposed to imagine it would have staggered Joshua. Um, And I think that that verse has an importance in in the interpretation of the whole of the remainder of, well, the book of Joshua and beyond, actually. Um, That although God is doing this thing, um, he is never wholly on Israel's side. And indeed, as we see. Quite shortly after the Battle of Jericho, they are defeated in battle and uh, on a number of other occasions. So, yeah, so, so that's the first thing to comment. The second thing to comment... Um, is to pick up on a point that I, I touched on briefly in my opening statement, which is that actions have, um, have a significance. And as I think you said yourself, David, you know, these stories are not simply given because they happened, but, but because they mean something, you know, that, that they're, they're being given to communicate something to us. Um, and I think there is good evidence um, to believe that the ancient people of Israel and the writer who is telling us about these actions understand the conquest as being a new creation event, another of these recapitulations of this creation story. There are, I mean, I don't think you want me to go into a, a lot of detail about this, I would imagine, um, but there are a number of uh, of textual points, textual clues that give us, um, that, that using sort of, creation type language and we also know that um, anthropologically speaking it's a it's a it's a common feature of um, primitive societies that um, that they view the settlement of new territory as a new creation event we also know from ancient near eastern sources um, one in particular called the mesh of steel that um, that they viewed as other nations viewed um, conquest as being um, a, a new territory a, um, creating a new space for their deity to, to inhabit if you like um, so so not for a minute denying that we are reading about actual deaths and actual people being killed and actual cities being conquered and and I get that and I can see this is a problem I do not yet have um, a satisfactory answer for but I do think that we need to notice that the principal thing that is going—well, I think the principal thing that is going on theologically, um, well, is one is fulfillment of promise, but the other part of that is this new creation idea, um, which is underlying what is going on.
1: Cool. Um, what, one thing that's interesting, though, that I haven't got into, but it sort of relates to what you're saying about, you know, some of these actions that they have an underlying significance and. I know this is something that the audience will appreciate me asking me maybe you might not appreciate it but it, it's important it, it's the abraham test
0: um, okay whoa whoa thing. hang on uh i just what? want to recuse myself audience you saw it right you saw this happen I am not the one who brought this up. <laughs> do, do not, do oh, not put this on me. <laughs> I am going to enjoy it thoroughly and make hay of it. But I didn't do this. Okay, this is no, this is a bit of an important. inside issue, Helen. Uh, this Abraham test thing. This has created okay. nothing but problems. I have promised uh, Dale privately and publicly that I wouldn't bring this sort of thing up because it gets him in trouble. He is bringing it up though. And so I have the license to to, to run with it. Go ahead.
1: Okay, I'm,
2: I'm feeling slight, like, like a myself right now.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Nice, David. Yeah. You got to scare the guy. No, it, it's so it. Yes. Yeah, so I've answered it myself. And my answer is sort of controversial and that sort of thing. But I, I am genuinely interested in your sort of take because it's obviously Abraham is. Uh, the paradigm of, of what it means to have a saving faith, in my opinion, and that sort of thing. So basically, the, the Abraham test comes in because uh, skeptics will ask, oh, well, Abraham, he was counted as righteousness because he had faith in God and was willing to kill his own his own son or sacrifice his own son. Um, so skeptics will sometimes ask, um, well, in a, even in a modern context, if God... Hypothetically, if God did ask you to do that, would you also exercise the same amount of faith in God and, and do likewise, or would you not uh, do that? So, yeah, that that's what they call, skeptics call the Abraham test. So You're, you're going to meet a
0: person on the board named Tara. Uh, sometimes goes by the handle of Plato Bird. Uh, if you interact with the forum, she will make your life... A living hell, based on the answer that you give to this. <laughs> I love Tara. I have had her on the show. <laughs> she is a wonderful, awful human being. Uh, and uh, I will have her on the show again. But I'm just warning you now, <laughs> this is not a casual okay. question, <laughs>
2: Okay, yeah, I don't think anything that's been sent tonight has been a casual question, actually. (laughs) Okay, let me have a go. Um, And again, I'm not going to satisfy everybody and probably won't satisfy anybody. Um, In answer to the very particular question that you gave at the end, Dale, um, if God asked me to do this, would I do it? No, because um, at the point. In the story where God says this to Abraham, Abraham does not yet know enough of God's character to know that He would never allow this to be seen through, and um, and we know enough of God's character. I I believe I know enough of God's character that you know the, His His abhorrence for human sacrifice has been made very clear but that's all in um, parts of the story that abraham has not yet encountered um so i think it is a a fair test in in i don't i'm not talking about the morality of it right now i'm talking about the um, validity of it as a test of faith it, it could operate in abraham for abraham where it could not operate now because we know more of god and so, if somebody came to me and said my congregation said God has told me to sacrifice my child, I'd say he most certainly hasn't. Um, mm-hmm. If you see what I mean. So that's that would be my response to that particular question. Okay,
1: so it's, I like it's your answer. answer. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, and so yeah, and so it's on condition about knowing enough about God's character, or, or being warranted in saying God is good, and therefore I would place my faith in Him to, to follow through with that. So. Can I
0: can I offer you another out? Uh, so that, that is in out. I don't think it's as complete as it could be. I'd like to offer you a chance to take a broader door. Um, so that was door number one. Here's door number two. Um, God never asked Abraham to do such a thing, and this is an apocryphal story that probably shouldn't be in the text um, uh, or a misinterpreted story or just... You know, not actually representing history. That's a good way to sidestep this question, in my opinion. And scholars have all kinds of ways of doing that. Would you consider taking door number two?
2: Uh, no, I can't. I uh, mean, unless I found, I, know. <laughs> uh, I mean, if I'm going to do that with the Abraham story, I'm going to get my scissors out for a whole lot of other stories, aren't I? Yes. Um, so, you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it's a broad door, but it's, it's not a bad yeah, one. It's not it terrible. my life
2: easy, but then what would I do with myself? <laughs> um,
0: I didn't say I was on your side. I said I was offering another door. <laughs>
2: I did. I did hear something recently, which I did toy with for a few minutes, and then had to careful read the text. And I don't think I can sustain this, but I'll throw it out because I heard this recently. And some, I heard somebody say that one interpretation of this is that um, failing the test would now hang on. Let me get, just get this right. That 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 it would. It was fail. It was passing the test to know that. To stay his hand, rather than to, to do it, and so so. Oh, I'm, I'm getting a bit tangled now. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly how they nuance it. Is it that Abraham stays his hand and sees the ram, and so says, "I'll sacrifice the ram," and God says, "Good, you've, you've passed the test." Is that sort of uh, inversion? But I just don't think the text can support that, to be honest. No. I think that's um,
0: no. Ab- Abraham's hand was coming down. He he had yeah. he, he had the crazy eyes at that point. He was he was <laughs> not going to stay his hand. <laughs> we could we can all see that.
2: <laughs> I think I think one thing that is going on here, which um, uh, which again is part of a bigger theme, um, is the theme of the slenderness of the promise and the fragility. Of the promise um, you know if you think about the promise um, to David of, of the Davidic line the continuous Davidic line and how slender that is at times in one particular moment it's um I think it's Atalia isn't it who slaughters every almost everybody in the Davidic house and one little baby is spirited away by his nurse um, and 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 but for that action, that promise would have failed. And, and so we get this, we get these moments. I did it once in, when I was doing this, uh, that particular story in um, in church with the children, and I had this 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 rope which kind of represents this continuation of God's promise. And and I, and I got it down to a to a thread at this point, and I got my scissors out, you know. So "Look, it's, it's it's about to go," sort of thing, but it doesn't. And I think this is a moment where th- that we are supposed to sense we're supposed to feel um they the the fragility of this promise and yet it doesn't fail and you and i read this thinking my goodness he isaac must have needed counseling for the rest of his life this okay. is
0: exactly okay. what i say <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> but i'm not sure that's what the ancient writer wants us to think of I'm course not wants us to think you know, they weren't he, thinking he, about he Isaac. Was, Come on. Good.
0: Isaac was a prop. He was a prop. <laughs> We're surprised. I'm surprised he even got a name in this story. Come on. No one was thinking about <laughs> Isaac.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: I've, and just to so know how I've refuted this from David, but, but yeah, you give you your take. Uh, okay. Um, all right, cool. So yeah, no, I, I appreciated your answer. I was genuinely interested to see what you, what you made of the, Abraham test there. So
0: I appreciate your answer too. believe it or not, because it's the answer that says, (laughs) yeah, I wouldn't do it. Um, I'm, I'm on record as saying, even as a Christian, I came to a point of, uh, you know, giving this story as much consideration as I could and thinking, yeah, there's no way I would kill my kid for a God. I don't care. I don't care uh, how angry he gets or what kind of hell he sends me to. I would defy him to his face and I just wouldn't do it. Uh, and I think that's the only actual an- uh, right answer to this test. I think any other yes. answer that says, "Yeah, I would do it because God said so, and it must have been right," means that you have given up any moral positioning whatsoever, and you've yeah. you've simply become a monster at that point. So, yeah. I and by the way, I think even you know taking this story as as real and not a literary device, I think that any real God would have said yeah, okay, I get it. You can't kill your kid. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to do it. I'll do it myself. Um, I think it would have been the right answer for Abraham to say, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, so um, that's, that's just kind of my positioning there. Look, this has been fantastic. Should we go into closing arguments, or are there some other threads that we need to pick at before we do?
1: Um, There's just one last thing I was curious, and we can just spend quickly, Um, so it's the the idea that you and Helen agree about that the Bible's not meant as a tool for for moral development and that sort of thing, so obviously that would be challenged by, by some Christians in our audience and that sort of thing, so I was just wondering, you know, there are verses where you know, we are expected to follow moral commandments or obe- obeying the commandments of Jesus and that sort of thing. So, yeah, maybe if you guys just want to sort of go back and forth on that a little bit as to what do you mean? It, the Bible's not a moral development tool?
0: Well, let me, let me try first, uh, and then I'll let uh, Helen tell me where I'm wrong. Uh, so <laughs> I actually disagree with her on that, and I side with you, Dale. Um, okay. So, yay, somebody's siding with Dale today me <laughs> this does not happen every week uh so uh, so I actually uh, agree with the implications that Dale has i I do think the Bible is intended to be a very strict moral guide in fact uh in fact i I'm going to I'm going to actually take a third way, because I don't think that the Bible is a moral book, per se, at all. I don't think the God of the Bible actually calls people to be moral or ethical in any way. I think they call them to be obedient. Uh, Thus saith the Lord, do it or die. Um, that, is, that is not moral thought. It is do this, it is obey commands. And command obeying is not morality, thinking. So that's, that's a different thing entirely. You can go through all your entire life obeying commands and never thinking morally. So I don't think in that sense that the Bible is calling for us to think morally. That said, I do agree with Dale's implication that it, it is prescribing various ways of behavior and, and uh, acting and thinking in in certain situations. Um and so I, I do think it is trying to say that the right thing to do is this and the wrong thing to do is this and here is an example of the right thing and here is an example of the wrong thing. Um, so I, in that sense I do think it's trying to be a moral guide. Okay.
1: And Helen what, what do you make of that?
2: Um, okay so there are I'm just trying to think how to kind of begin. I think so, so reading it as a Christian rather than um, rather than as a Jew. Um, so what is, the, what is the purpose? We need to think about the purpose of the, the Old Testament law and what, um, what role that has for Christians today and we need to think about what Paul says about that. Um, he uses the language of being like a a sort of schoolmaster that schools you in, in how to be pending the coming of Christ. We, we have this idea, this developing idea of the law that's written um, on our hearts rather than um, being written on, on tablets of stone. So um, I'm not saying that there is, we have nothing to learn from the Old Testament. I absolutely am not saying we have nothing to learn from the Old Testament, but it is not Primarily or simplistically in any way a moral guide. Um, Now, moving into the New Testament, um, of course, we have the life and teaching of Jesus, um, which has a um, which has a a, obviously as a Christian, I would say that has a, a priority above anything else. The what we read in the epistles, it's all um what they call occasional, you know, these written for particular occasion in particular instances. So what what's going on, really, I think, is that um, the apostles have this phenomenal concept that at the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has begun the making of all things new and he has formed um the church which is somehow standing in this ethical calling with this 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 court this vocation that was um jesus's and was israel's and was Adam's and so the church has this phenomenal vocation and then they are wrestling out how what does that mean to live in that vocation in this world in Corinth in Ephesus and so on. Um, so their directions i'm not again please don't hear me say that any of this is valueless I, i'm you know, i hope i'll be the last person to say that any of this is valueless It's tremendously valuable but what it is not is in simple terms um a how to live um it is a wrestling out with how the church might live in in that context in that situation there are things we definitely can learn from that but we can't just drag and drop them um and th- there's a uh, and 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 it is not certainly not um a rule based thing it's um it's much more of a virtue ethic actually i would say although i know virtue ethic has pagan origins, but I think there is something kind of there's a kind of virtue ethic idea um, that paul is using um and it, it is also absolutely not intended um as a, a as a prescription for how people who are not part of that um covenant that, that covenant community of christ um should live. So, yes, I mean there are of course, as a Christian, I say, "How do I live?" and I look to the Bible to discern that, but I can't just kind of pluck things out and say, "Well, this tells me how I well ought to live and it certainly I would not want to try and then apply that to someone who, who does not call themselves a Christian and say, "Well you should, you should live like this because it says that because actually what the Bible says to those who are not in in the community in the community, community is is much more complex than that and uh, is much more um, invitation.
1: as well. Gotcha, that, that makes more sense. Thank, thanks for, for that. Okay, perfect. Um, all right, so let's get into the closing. Um, we'll start with David's closing remarks, and then we'll finish. We'll give Helen the last word with her closing remarks. So yeah, I'll turn it over to you, David. Okay,
0: um, now that the time is upon us, I wish I had made notes. Um, <laughs> that would have been convenient. Cool.
1: You told me to do that for you. Yeah, I did,
0: and you have not emailed me anything. Uh, oh, so God. You're gonna, in the mail, <laughs> that's okay. Um, so he, I'm going to close with um, with some of Helen's words ringing in my ears uh, from early on in this discussion. And so, first of all, thank you, Helen, for a truly delightful. Debate. Oh,
2: thank you. Uh,
0: it, it it makes debate sound like a good thing uh, when <laughs> when we've done it. <laughs> um, so I uh, I have thoroughly uh, in, enjoyed this, and um, I hope that um, you know in our second season you would uh, you would come back and do this again um, oh. because uh, it was thank it was you. quite delightful. So that thank said. You. I am, um, I can't get past, uh, your starting point. I think, um, after, after all of this, the thing that sticks in my mind is, um, God is, God is good and, and the Bible, um, is it in some way a a representation of God, uh, through Jesus, um, these are starting points that I can't get on board with, and I used to. I think if you start there, it's, it's rather easy to get to your conclusions. But I think that if you back up a half step and, and start at a more neutral position, it's very hard to get there. So if, you, if your starting point is not that God is good, but that you don't even know if there's a God— and the only thing you know about this God and his character is what you read about in the Bible, then I don't think that you can get to where you've gotten. The only way to get where you've gotten is to start with the idea that God is good and and to start with a faith position. Because just as a reader of the literature, as as standalone work, it does not... uh, It does not welcome me into the arms of a loving and thoughtful God if the only thing I ever knew about this God was what I read. So that is not to say that you would come to the conclusion that there is no God or that God is evil. But I don't think that you come to the conclusion that there is a God and that God is good. Uh, And I think that that the... agnostic position becomes much more reasonable when you start at a place prior to where you start. And I would encourage those who have heard this debate today to mind your starting point and make sure that your foot is not across the line before the gun is fired, rather back up to the proper starting point and look at it with fresh eyes. Thanks so much for your time. Helen.
2: Oh, thank you. That was shorter than the statement <laughs> I was planning to make, but I cut mine a little bit. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me. I was I was apprehensive. I wondered if you would lay me out to dry, and uh, I have enjoyed it as you said I would, and I have appreciated um, a, a a stimulating and um, I hope mutually respectful debate. Has been great. Thank you. Um, let me. Uh, Yeah, but we've been talking about some rather grim parts of the Bible today um, and focusing on the hardest core of texts for which I, uh, you know, I'm totally honest that I don't have any convincing answer. But I don't actually want to end um, with that taste in our mouths because I think that's actually to misrepresent the overall tenor and thrust of Scripture and God's great purpose as I see it. So I'm going to close, if I may, by giving um, a brief antidote To that and showing how I believe actually that the Bible is overall, with exceptions I know, but overall um, directed towards peace. Um, The Hebrew word for peace is, is, as I'm sure everyone listening knows, is is shalom and it has a has a wide semantic range. It means completeness, intactness, the range of meanings encompassing prosperity and welfare and um, good relationships and deliverance and health and it's a, a hugely important theme that runs Through the whole Bible. And we've already spoken um, about the um, creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And although the word shalom is not used there, um, I fundamentally believe that the distinction that is drawn by the writer there from in comparison with the other creation myths um, uh, shows this um, orientation towards shalom. I notice that. In the garden, life at the point is intrinsically non-violent. Humans are given um, to eat every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth. It's only after the flood that meat is introduced. And and relationship between the man and the woman in the garden is non-competitive and harmonious. Um, it's only after they take the forbidden fruit that mutual competitiveness enters their relationship. And of course, there's no death in the garden before the taking of the fruit. Um... So I think, I think there's something very particular about the creation accounts in Genesis, and because they are situated before the fall, I think they are intended to give us a glimpse of what life should be like. They are normative in a way that, as I've already perhaps um, suggested, that um, the rest of the Bible isn't, with the exception, I think, of the last two chapters of Revelation and the life and teaching of Jesus. Um The laws, Old Testament laws, uh, are being given for a broken society. The history is being played out in an already violent world. The prophets are speaking in a world that is fractured and unjust. I think we need to notice how it all begins and what we're shown there about God's perfect design and intention. And then reading on from there, and notwithstanding all the problematic texts that we have been talking about and which I absolutely um, can admit are there, this theme of shalom runs richly through the Old Testament. Um, the giving of the law to Israel, I think, should be understood as a way of trying to build shalom into everyday life. How do I behave when my when I lend someone an ox that then dies? Well, Exodus 22 gives me a pattern that is neither unduly lenient nor over punitive. It's aimed towards shalom between neighbours. Um, what happens if someone who has been excluded from the community because of a skin disease finds out it's been cleared up? Leviticus 14 gives us. The detailed protocols, so that they can be embraced by the community again. It's aiming, I think, towards shalom. I think the wisdom books are aiming towards shalom as well. The book of Proverbs shows us how to live well in God's world. Um, tells us how, gives us advice like don't gossip, be impartial in judicial processes, be faithful to your spouse. To your spouse sorry, the prophets have a vision of a future society where once again shalom will be the norm and the destructive action of man and beast will cease we we know the famous passages in isaiah and micah the the wolf lying down with a lamb and beating the sword into plowshares moving into the new testament we notice it's peacemakers whom jesus describes as the children of god the idea of it's actually sons of god as being those who who are marked with a stamp who are about the family business and we notice too the descriptions in ephesians and colossians of the peace and reconciliation that is achieved by Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, and reconciliation actually cosmic, um, reconciling all things to himself. And then finally, in John's vision of the new Jerusalem, we read a city where the curse is no more, where the tree of life is given for the healing of the nations, and where the description of the exclusion of murderers from the city shows us that this is now a wholly non-violent society, because everything has been made new. And that was a whistle-stop tour of some of the high points in the theme of Shalom. And yes, questions remain, as as I've said, throughout um, our conversation. Um, but what I've been wanting to show just now is a baseline understanding that God's purposes are for Shalom and that the story of the Bible um, extends from creational Shalom to eternal Shalom. And My prayer as a Christian believer and as a student of the Bible is that I might grow in understanding his great plan for the shalom of the whole cosmos and that I might somehow participate with him in it. Thank you.
1: Excellent. All right, so that uh, concludes the debate. Hopefully uh, the people in the audience enjoyed your time. Uh, I'm glad that uh, David and and both Helen mentioned that uh, you enjoyed your time on the show as well.
2: Very much, thank you.
1: Yeah,
0: this this is... You've been my favorite guest all week.
2: Oh, that's very yeah. kind.
0: <laughs> so, uh, and the fact is, my
2: only guest you had a week. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well,
2: here's the thing: <laughs> okay. all of my
0: guests are my favorite guests at the time of the show. I love every one of them. They are—they're um, all surprising in their way. Uh, whether I mean, it's, it's from afterwards, after they're <laughs> <off>. <laughs> well, the beauty is you can see exactly what I say behind your back because I write a blog <laughs> every, uh, <laughs> every week. <laughs> uh, and so I think about it for a few minutes, really a few minutes, not days. I don't, I don't digest it that long. Um, and, um, and I write what is on my heart and, uh, I welcome the, Guest of that week to uh, respond, I'll put it on the I'll put it on the uh, blog in kind. No one ever does. Randall Rouser did. uh, So if I can provoke you to emulation, Rouser did it. Rouser. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But at any rate, yeah,
1: she gave you a bit of a a brief reply as well last week. So that was
0: yeah. um, And um, Lydia McGrew and her husband. Uh, braved the uh, murky waters of the blog itself they came on and uh, mixed it up with the crowd um, I bet they'll never do that again um, <laughs> but it was very nice to have them uh, and so you are you are welcome to all of these things but you'll be happier and healthier and wiser if you just don't do <laughs> don't
2: don't, don't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yes, it it has been a delight and um you know your your final speech was moving. I um I mean that sincerely and I I take uh, I reiterate uh, one of the lines that rings in my head from it be faithful to your spice. Uh so <laughs> don't don't hold back on the curry. Uh, don't yeah. Oh, I I hope I didn't miss the whole thrust of this speech, but I was moved. um so It was actually a beautiful speech. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: David, do you want to tell them what we have in store for next week?
0: Then? Let me just take a moment to stop cracking wise um, here. <laughs> So, <laughs> there are some guests that just pull it out of me. <laughs> so, um, next week. So I mentioned that this was the penultimate um, show of our season and what a great one it has been. It has met all of my expectations and exceeded them. Uh, next week, it will be myself and Dale. Original skeptic versus original seeker mano a mano, as God intended. And uh, we are going to hold no bars as we discuss uh, with one another in the audience some observations from this season and make an impassioned plea uh, of the most important points there are to us. And we're not talking about a bunch of stuff that you know, is interesting but doesn't matter. We're talking about stuff that actually affects our faith or lack thereof. These are the things that make us who we are. They are the things that make us believers, that make us not believers. If they changed, it would it would fundamentally sway who we were. And so I want you to tune in for that as we talk about things that are truly monumentally important to us um, and hopefully to you and um, that so cool
1: yeah sounds like a so and the thing and the
0: thing is I don't know what it's gonna be I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and step out on a limb here and say Dale do not write uh your typical post uh or at least you can write it but don't share it with me in advance um because it doesn't actually matter what I think and my rebuttals don't matter I want you to talk directly to the audience about what's important to you I will do the same um and um So there you have it. That's how we're going to end this thing uh, for the next couple of months.
1: That's good. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks again to Helen for being on uh, this week. And thanks to the audience. Have a good week, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.